Well, good morning, 11 a.m. Man, that was weak. We're going to try it again. Y'all know how I am. Good morning, 11 a.m. Hey, happy Resurrection Sunday. Come on. If, if, if we weren't gathered here to celebrate this day, there would be no reason for us to gather, period. Uh, we would just be out fishing, playing golf. Now I've got some of you minds thinking about going playing golf and fishing. But I promise you, man, it's going to be a great day today. Uh, listen, those that's your first time, welcome. Uh, this is, you're, you're about to see an illustrated message that we believe God gave us for this Easter day. Uh, those that, maybe it's your first time in a long time, welcome back home. Amen. Um, those watching this online, welcome, welcome. We wish you could be here because it's definitely better in person than online. Amen? Yes. Hey, uh, there, there's an old Indian proverb that says this. Everyone is a house with four rooms, a physical, a mental, an emotional, and a spiritual room. Most of us tend to live in one room most of the time, but unless we go into every room every day, even if only to keep it aired out, we are not a complete person. There are rooms in our minds, every person here, whether we want to admit it or not, we have got these compartmentalized rooms in our mind where we store things, where we put things, and we lock them away, and those rooms never really get cleaned out. The problem is, is this, if we leave them there and we never clean the rooms, they end up burning themselves into our very being, and they brand themselves on us as if now these rooms, they own us, not we own them. Welcome to Rooms. If I cope with all this anger in me, physically abused. That's a room that I don't want to be in. That picture ain't blurry at all. I just don't want to see it. These walls ain't blank. I just think I don't want to see them. But why not? I'm in here, so I might as well read them. I got to thank you for this anger that I carry around. Wish I could take a match, burn this whole room to the ground. Matter of fact, I think I'm going to burn this room right now. For some reason, this memory just won't burn down. You put me in a corner so you can see the fear in my eyes that took me downstairs and beat me till I screamed and I cried. Congratulations. You'll always have a room in my mind, but I'm going to keep the door shut and lock the lyrics Yeah. Room one. Room one. 
case those lyrics went by a little too fast, let me read you just some of them. My mind is a house with walls covered in lyrics. They're all over the place. There's songs on the mirrors. I put holes in the walls with both my fists till they bleed. You might get a glimpse of how I cope with all this anger in me. Physically abused, that's a room I don't want to be in. These walls ain't blank. I just don't want to see them. I got to thank you for this anger that I carry around. Wish I could take a match and burn this whole room to the ground. You used to put me in a corner so you could see the fear in my eyes and took me downstairs and beat me till I screamed and cried. Congratulations, you'll always have a room in my mind, but I'm going to keep the door shut, lock these lyrics inside. Some of you can relate all too well to those words. In fact, you hear them. You saw Casey wrapping them out and acting them out, and you're like, it brought some of you back to a certain place in your life. Maybe you know what it's like to have rooms in your mind with words written all over them. Maybe they were written there by a parent, by a spouse, by a teacher, by someone that should have had your back, by someone that should have loved you. And now, before you go to bed, you see those words written on the walls of your mind. And when you wake up in the morning, you see those walls too. Maybe you've experienced it, or maybe you're in the middle of it right now where you're experiencing some kind of abuse, sexual abuse, physical abuse, mental abuse, emotional abuse. So the first room we're going to enter today, if you're taking notes, the room of soul wounds. Soul wounds. Here's what I mean when I say soul wounds. Uh, it's, it's hurts or pains that have metastasized. That, that, that word gets used a lot in cancer. And basically what they're talking about when they say that it's metastasized, they're saying the cancer cells that were dominant in one area of your body have now traveled through your blood or lymph system and now have formed new tumors in other parts of your body with the same type of cancer. They metastasized. And that's what soul wounds do. There are these hurts, these memories, disappointments, anger, pain. They attach ourselves to our soul, but over time, they begin to spread to other parts of our body if we don't deal with them. And though you can't see them with your human eyes, they're embedded in your mind, and you know they're there. And you begin to internalize them. And here's what those soul wounds begin to do. They leave you feeling that there are parts of you that are too broken to be fixed. Come on. It leaves you feeling there are parts of you that if anybody ever found out about these, they wouldn't love you or want you around. There, there's, there are these deep-seated feelings that says you'll never measure up. You'll always be a failure. That part of you that says, if they knew the real me, no one would want to even be around me. And I'm not talking about surface wounds. I'm not talking about a spot on the skin that can be easily removed. I'm talking about wounds that go to the very core and begin to form who you think you are. It makes you feel rejected. Makes you feel unloved, unappreciated, unwanted, abused, mistreated. It makes you feel angry. 
especially the people that should have been looking out for you and had your best interest at heart, but they hurt you. And just like cancer, if you ignore the ones, if you just say, hopefully they'll go away, they'll continue to grow and they'll spread and they will direct the rest of your life if you don't deal with them. And that's what's been going on with some of you for a while now. Those hurts, those disappointments, those failures, those thoughts, those things that have been, they have been setting the course for your life, telling you where to go, who you are, where you belong, where you don't belong. You ever heard the phrase, time heals all wounds? That's not entirely true. Because the truth is, if you leave those wounds unattended, it doesn't matter how much time goes by. They won't get healed. Because the fact is this, time in and of itself doesn't heal anything. And this is room number two. Yo, my mind is a house of walls covered with pain. See, my problem is I don't fix things. I just try to repay. Cover them up like it ain't happened. Guess which can change? Are you confused? Come upstairs and I'll show you what I mean. This room's full of regrets. Just keeps getting fuller, it seems. The moment I step into it, it's the same moment that I want to leave. I get sick to my stomach every time I look at these things. But it's hard to look past when this is the room where I sleep. I look around. One of the worst things I wrote on these walls. It's the moment I realized that I was losing my mom One of the worst things I wrote is I wish I would have called We should just stop now, I ain't got enough room in this song I regret the fact that I struggle, trying to find who I am And a lot of myself would say I'm doing the best that I can Shrug it off like it ain't nothing, like it's out of my hands And get take off whenever I see it affecting my plans I regret the fact, just trust that you take me alive And I, they'll be there when I die, congratulations You'll always have a room in my mind, but I'm going to shut and lock the lyrics inside. Room number two. Says this. My mind is a house covered in pain. The problem is I don't fix things. I just try to repaint. Cover them up like it never happened, happened and say I wish I could change. Hmm. Second room. Room of denial. Room of denial. There, there's an old movie, uh, Monty Python and the Holy Grail. Anybody ever seen it? One of my favorite scenes in this movie is when the black knight and the green knight, King Arthur comes up on them and they're fighting. The black knight ends up beating the green knight. And so uh, King Arthur is going to offer him a place to fight with him. 
and fight, fight alongside of him. But the Black Knight is not having it. And, and so he squares off against King Arthur. Finally, King Arthur has taken his sword off. He cuts off the Black Knight's arm. There's blood going everywhere. And what does the Black Knight say? But a flesh wound. By the end of this scene, the black knight is literally just a torso with a head. His legs have been cut off, both his arms, and yet he still is just a flesh wound. Don't we do that? Hurts, disappointments, hit us in life. And there are those in this room, man, you've been hurt. Those online that have been hurt and wounded. But you treat that pain, you treat that hurt like it's no big deal. Just a flesh wound. And you walk around lying to yourself. Other people can see you bleeding. Other people can see you hurting. Oh, it's just a flesh wound. It's all right. Maybe it was a parent who walked out when you were just a kid. Maybe it was a group of students that bullied you. Maybe you were verbally, physically, or sexually abused, or maybe a spouse walked out when you needed them the most, or a friend, a group of friends walked away from you when you needed them the most. And what we've been trained to do, especially in our church world, to walk in. How you doing? If you've been in the church world long enough, you've heard this. Oh, blessed and highly favored. When you know they're walking through hell. You know, well, you look anything but blessed and highly favored. What would happen, church, if we developed a culture where I could go to Scott, Scott say, how you doing? And I actually begin to be honest with him. Let me tell you what my week's been like. I've struggled. I've been hurt this week. I've dealt with some issues in my life. Instead of trying to cover it up and acting like it's no big deal. What if I said, hey, you know what, Scott? I haven't dealt with this in a very long time. But man, there was 10 years ago that this person hurt me. This person walked out and they betrayed me. And man, I'm having feelings this week. And I just, I need, I don't like them. What if we got there? Instead of this, when we walk through the doors, it's almost like before we get out of the car, we put on the mask. That tells everybody else, oh, I've got my stuff together. I'm good. Man, what if we created a culture that you felt free enough to get rid of the mask and just walk in here just like you are? That's kind of what I want. But what we've been trying to do is... Don't let anybody see our pain. Don't let anybody see our struggle. Jeremiah 6, man, God is talking to the children of Israel. And he's wondering, hey, if, if things don't change, if you don't quit sinning, this is what's going to happen to you. And you keep acting like there's no sin. You keep acting like there's nothing wrong. He says this in verse 14 of Jeremiah 6. This is the living Bible translation. You can't heal a wound by saying it's not there. You can't heal a wound by saying it's not there. So what are the soul wounds that have been inflicted upon you? What is that hurt or that pain that goes to the core of who you think you are? See, while those wounds and while the pain of those wounds, uh, they're, they're very real. It isn't necessarily the pain 
of the wound or even the wound itself that will keep you stuck. What will keep you stuck is how the enemy gets you to interpret that pain. How he gets you to see that pain. He, he is an expert at, a, at taking advantage of a wounded person. And what he tries to do is get whatever happened to you, he tries to give you enough. This is why it happened to you. And maybe you as a child, one of your parents, mom or dad, walked out of your life. It wasn't your fault. You had nothing to do with it. There's nothing you could have done. But what the enemy likes to do is step in. And when you're alone at night in that room and you know mom and dad has walked out, what the enemy says, it's your fault. If you'd have been a better kid, if you hadn't acted up so much, if you had minded and obeyed better, this wouldn't have happened. And he begins to get us to interpret that pain by those words. Same thing happens to someone that's been molested or abused. What the enemy does while you're sitting alone in that hurt and that pain, he comes and says, you set yourself up for this. You deserve this. And he begins to get us to interpret and see that pain in a different light. Maybe you walked through a divorce that wasn't your choice. You didn't want the divorce. But now the enemy comes to you and he'll say things like, if you'd been better, they'd stayed with you. If you'd done things different, they wouldn't have walked out on you. If you'd been more loving, if you'd been more giving, maybe, maybe they wouldn't have done this. And this is where it gets dangerous, guys. Because if in that moment when the enemy is whispering these things into your ear, even if you don't know that he's doing it. If you begin to agree with that, what you're doing, you're giving him a door into your life. The writer of this song goes on to talk about a room that's full of regrets and a room that just keeps getting fuller. He says this, I regret the fact that I struggle trying to find who I am. And I lie to myself and say, I'm doing the best I can. Shrug it off like it ain't nothing, like it's out of my hands. And then I get ticked off when it's affecting my plans. Then he ends that verse with his haunting words. Congratulations. You'll always have a room in my mind. The question is, will I ever clean the walls off in time? Regrets. The writer talks about the regret of not being there when his mom passed. And I was reminded of Pastor Casey. He's been very open about the regrets he has when, when our dad passed away. And he was deep into his, his opioid addiction at the time and barely even remembers dad being sick and him passing away. And he talks about going into the, my dad's room. When dad was at the house, we'd called in hospice, and he would go in there and steal dad's pain pills to feed his addiction. And he talks about those regrets that he has. He talks about how God heals them. And I tell you, man, if we allow it, that room of regrets will get full and just keep growing and growing and growing. I'm talking about, and he will give you everything. Regrets that we loved our addiction more than we did our kids. 
He'll give us regrets that we walked out of a relationship. We walk, you walked out of the regrets that we, we weren't the mom or dad. We should have been when they were little, and now it's too late. Man, the enemy. See, here's the thing about regrets. Regrets can be good company if they're just company because company comes and goes. But regrets make terrible roommates. So this part of my house, no one's been in it for years. I built a safe room and I don't let no one in there. Because if I do, there's a chance that they might disappear and not come back. And I admit, I am emotionally scared to let anyone inside. I just leave my doors locked. You might get other doors to open up, but this door's not. Because I don't want you to have the opportunity to hurt me. And I'll be the only person that I can blame when you desert me. Barricaded inside, so stop watching. I'm not coming to the door. Stop knocking, stop knocking, I'm trapped here. God keeps saying I'm not locking, I don't this. I am lost in my own conscience. Shutting the world down ain't solving a problem. But I didn't build this house because I thought it would solve them. I built it because I thought that it was safer in here, but it's not. I'm not the only thing that's living in here. We came to my house years ago. I let him in, must have been the problem. I've been dealing with this ever since. I thought that he believed. It's obvious he never did. He must have picked a room and got comfortable, settled in. Now I'm in a position, it's either sit here, let him win, or put him back outside where he came from, but I never can. In order to do that, I'd have to open the doors. Is that me or the fear talking? I don't know anymore. third room, the room of lies. Room of lies. Uh, a few years ago, I took a group, I think I even did this on Wednesday night, where we walked through a, a book called Experiencing God by Henry and Richard Blackaby. In one of the chapters, uh, he talked about this conference that he was leading and where he was talking about God being a loving father. And he said when it came to discussion time and for people to interject, he said this woman stood up and began to tell her story through her tears. This is what he said, she said. So that she grew up. Her father never seemed satisfied with her. She couldn't make high enough grades to please him. She couldn't play the piano well enough. She couldn't do anything that seemed to satisfy or please him. Then she was a teen, when she was a teenager, her father abandoned the family, moved in with another woman. She never saw him again. Devastated, this woman constantly wondered whether he might not have turned his back on her 
if she had been a better daughter or made him happier at home. Now as a married woman with teenage children of her own, she says she lives in constant fear that she'd lose her husband and children too, that when they discovered what she was really like, someone her own father couldn't even love, that they would reject her just like he did. She had lived her entire life under this fear. She kept her family and friends at arm's length so they could never get too close. Her painful upbringing tainted her view of God because she had concluded God was just as judgmental, unloving, and hard to please as her earthly father had been. The writer in this last last verse says, I'm barricaded inside, so stop watching. I'm not coming to the door, so stop knocking. I'm trapped here. Listen, God keeps saying I'm not locked in. I chose this. I'm lost in my own conscience. God keeps saying I'm not locked in. God keeps saying this is not the way things have to be. God keeps saying this is not the way I created you. But I'm choosing to believe something else. You know where they say most battles are fought and won, right? In the mind. Battle for your freedom will almost always take place in your mind. And according to Jesus, and I tend to believe what Jesus says, Satan's weapon of choice is lies. That's why he says this about Satan in John 8, 44. He was a murderer from the beginning. He has always hated what? Because there is no truth in him. When he lies, get this, it's consistent with his character. For he is a liar and the father of lies. Satan's number one weapon, his number one tool is lies. I'm not talking about lies that we're just, come on, kind of... Make it bigger than what it is. My uncle Ted, he he may not ever admit this. I don't know. But growing up, he was one of the biggest liars we knew. He'd go fishing. You couldn't believe a word he said about the fishing trip, because it was always bigger, more fish. I mean, it was. You know, uh, Casey and Bob and I went to Knoxville yesterday, and we got talking about one of Bob's friends. That listen, if you told him this great story. He's done it too and better. I'm not talking about those lies. I'm talking about lies that get so deep-seated inside of us that we begin to believe them and what they say about us and who we are. That's the lies I'm talking about. He attacks us with lies. Because get this, Satan's number one goal is not to get you to do something bad. You know, remember what I said? Well, Satan made me do it. That's not it. Like that was his number one go. Can I tell you Satan's number one go? To keep you from becoming the man or woman that God created you to be. That's his number one go. And he'll be tell us lies. The first lie he, he tells is this. He tells you lies about God. He lies to you about God. And you may not even know it. Well, you may, you may come, well, this is just where I've come to believe about God. Yeah, how do you think you come up with that conclusion? You didn't just one day wake it up believing that. 
had this discussion the other day with a gentleman. And he was saying, well, you know, I'm spiritual. I'm not religious. And I said, well, you do realize you're saying you're spiritual doesn't, you're not, doesn't make you a Christian. Because Jesus made this statement, because there's, there's a lot of spiritual people out there, in case you don't know. But Jesus says, hey, there's only one way. I'm it. It won't change with time. It won't change with culture. There's one way. I'm it, he says. He, but he lies to you. He'll say things like, hey, God doesn't really care about you and what's going on in your life. Hey, God doesn't love you. How could he love you? That's what you've walked through, what you've been through. Oh, God is distant. He's, he's detached. He's uninvolved. Or here's a good one. God doesn't really, God, God isn't really good. At least not to me. He's good to everybody else. He's not good to me. Or God's the reason for this hurt and this pain, this loss. Nanise and I went and saw a movie. Um, it was about this, this man, he, he, he was raised an uh, atheist, him and his mom and dad, that's how they raised him, didn't believe in God, but he had this experience where he believed now God was calling him to be a priest. And uh, he sits out on this course to become a priest, and, and his mom and dad, they're aggravated enough with him. His dad is pretty distant from him, uh, but he comes back into his life. Well, he, he develops this degenerative bone disease that begins to take his life slowly. And his mom's trying to get him to come back home, come back home. And he said, this is what God has told me to do. And this woman that was, it's funny to me how people that are atheists somehow find a way to blame God for things. And, you know, some of you would go to this movie and what would stand out to you more is some of the language in the movie. But I was telling my brother, I said, what I appreciated was the realness that I saw because it's based on a true story. But we blame. Here, here's one of my favorite, not my favorite, this is one of the worst lies that's going around right now. This is just who you are. This is how God made you. This is how God made you. He lies to you about God. Also, he lies to, get this, he lies to you about you. You. And we don't even know it. He attacks how we see ourselves. He attacks our value. He attacks, he'll tell you things like, hey, you're not good enough. You'll never be good enough. You're not qualified. You're not wanted. You're not loved. You're not important. You don't really matter. Or you don't, here's a good one. I've heard this. You don't fit in. Sometimes I'm thank God that I don't fit in. Here's one. You're all alone. Don't, nobody really cares about you. You're hopeless. You're a huge disappointment. This is just who you are. Live with it. Let me ask you a question. What if it's not? What if those lies aren't true? What if that's not just the way you are? What if that's not the way God created you, but you've bought into it? What if not? I am convinced that how a lot of us see ourselves and our belief system, they get based upon lies that the enemy has painted and placed in our hearts. And we don't even know it. 
Because his number one goal is to not make you sin, not make you do something bad. It's to keep you from becoming the man or woman of God he created you to be. How would your life change if you begin to recognize that the lies are what they are, lies, and you begin to believe what God says about you? What would happen if you started believing God when he says, you are qualified? You're not hopeless. You're, you're not all alone. You are wanted. You are needed. You are loved. You're not a huge mistake. You're not a huge disappointment or failure. This isn't the way. This isn't just how you are. What if we believed him when he said you're chosen? You're his beloved. You're redeemed. You're a mighty warrior. You are his. What if we believed that? See, here's, I struggle whether to share this or not, but I'm going to go with it. It's not in my notes. Me and my wife were having this conversation. And a lot of we have conversations that probably nobody else has. Because <laughs> we get asked things that nobody else gets asked if you're not a pastor. We were having this conversation about this generation growing up that you know, they're not a sheep. They want to be identified as a them or they or a pronoun. I'm not up to date on that. And she said, Kelly, what, what would you do if you pro? I said, Here, here's my thing. If you want to see yourself that way, that's up to you. I choose to see you how God created you. I choose to see you what God created you for. And there's nothing, I don't care what, I will never see you anything else less than God's child, God's daughter, God's son. Never see you as anything less. Because what has happened, the enemy has lied to us, our, our kids, our, this generation, to where we're taking away their identity and replacing it with a pronoun. The enemy is tricky. He lies. You can get pissed off at me or not. I don't really care. And I never say that word from the stage, but that's the way I feel because I believe God is saying, listen, we need to start seeing them as who God created them to be. And I apologize. If that offends you, I never say that from the stage. Now, if you're out with me golfing, you'll probably hear it or something where like that. Uh, especially when I make, well, most of my shots are bad, so it's not just when I make a bad shot. But what happens, we fall into these strongholds. Well, what's a stronghold? Because we can hear that, well, they've got a stronghold in their mind, stronghold on this. Here's what it is. Strongholds are pattern of thoughts. They're pattern of thoughts. Let me give you the best definition I've ever come across. Bring that up for me. A stronghold is an entrenched pattern of thinking or behavior that we've started to believe can't change. Even though we know that these thoughts and behaviors are less than what God wants for our life. We still believe them. And it's a stronghold. And that's some of you. You start to believe that you can't change. That this is just the way life is. And you know that these thoughts, you know that these behaviors are not what God wants for your life. But without you even realizing it, lie upon lie, you've built strongholds. And this pattern of thinking has now become who you are. And you think that can never change fourth room 
room of cycles. I know some of y'all were disappointed when the lights didn't go dim in case he didn't come out and rap. That's the whole song. We could have made it longer, but we didn't. Room of cycles. The room of cycles, this room is built on all these wounds that are left ignored or uncared for. It's built on lies that we've believed. And he, listen to me. You can change where you live. You can change your location. You can change where you work. You can move to another city, another state, another country. You can change jobs. You can change spouses. But the biggest problem with all that is when you get to that place, you're there too. You're there too. When you get there, you're there. See, some of you, you keep moving from one place to another, one relationship to another, one church to another, one job to another, but regardless of where you go, you keep pulling up with that giant U-Haul of all those things, and you bring those things with you. Oh, this may not be possible. I tell people, man, I've been married five times. uh, man. And usually when they tell you they've been married five times, it was all those other five spouses. It's their fault that things didn't work out. And I want to say, hey, 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 hey. What was the common denominator? (laughs) You. And I say that about people that hop from church to church to church to church. And they always find something wrong. Always find something wrong with that church. And they jump and jump. And I say, what's the common denominator? And you'll always jump until you own up to who you are. And say, I've got some junk I need to quit carrying around with me. Telling your soul wounds, they need to be dealt with, must be dealt with. Those lies needed to be replaced and and need to be rejected and replaced with truth. You need to to get out of the room of denial, saying you don't have a problem or issue. You need to quit denying your hurt. C.S. Lewis, in his book, Mere Christianity, I love this imagery. He said, imagine yourself as a living house. God comes in to rebuild that house. At first, perhaps you understand what he's doing. He's getting the drains right. He's stopping the leaks in the roof and so on. You know those jobs needed to be done, so you're not surprised. But then he starts knocking the house about in a way that hurts and does not seem to make any sense to you. What on earth is he up to? The explanation is that he is building quite a different house from the one you thought of throwing and throwing out there and putting out. He says this. You thought you were being made into a decent little cottage, but he was building a palace that he comes that he's intending on coming to live in. See this Easter 2022. I'm not going to stand up here and tell you you're not broken. I'm not going to stand up here and say you're not jacked up, you're not messed up, you don't have problems, because, hey, we know I would be lying. We've all got issues. We've all got problems. But here's what I am going to tell you. The reason Jesus came, 2 Corinthians 5.21, God made him who had no sin, to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. 
Let me break down what that exactly means. That means on the cross, Jesus exchanged his perfection for our imperfection. That on the cross, he exchanged his obedience with our disobedience, his strength for our weakness, his intimacy with the Father for our distance from God the Father. He exchanged his blessing for our curse, his righteousness for our sin, his wholeness for our brokenness. That's what Easter's about. In the last round, and I'm closing. Luke 15, um, first of Luke 15, Jesus tells these um, three, don't, don't bring that up for me, please, yet. Jesus goes into this story time, you know, with Jesus, how he does. And he's telling these parables, and um, he tells these three short stories. And most of you are familiar with the first story and the third story. But here's how he opens up. Chapter 15, bring that up now. Tax collectors and other notorious sinners. I said this a couple of weeks ago. I know it's hard to believe, uh, but there was a time in our world where uh, people didn't like tax collectors. We love them now. So, <laughs> so the other notorious sinners often came to listen to Jesus teach. This made the Pharisees and teachers of religious law complain that he was associating with such sinful people, even eating with them. The nerve of Jesus. And Jesus goes into the story. And he, the first story he tells is the one about the shepherd that has a hundred sheep and one of them goes missing. And it talks about how he leaves the 99 to go find the one. And then when he brings that one, that one back into the fold, what does he do? Throws a party. Throws a party. The one that was lost has now been returned. And then the third story he goes into is one that's, even if you didn't grow up in church, the prodigal son. Where the son, the youngest son, goes to his father and pretty much says, Dad, you're dead to me. Give me my inheritance. And he leaves and goes and squanders all his money, finds himself uh, neck deep in, pig, in a pigsty and just doing things he, he swore he'd never do. And he think, it says this, I love this, it says, when he came to his senses, he thought, I'm going to go back to the Father and just beg to be a servant. They've got it better than I've got it. And if you know the story, he runs back, he's going back, and the Father's watching him from a distance, which lets me know that every day the Father was standing on that front porch. I know his gait. I know how he walks. That's him. And it says the Father ran to him. And what happens here, I'm telling you, it's so radical. I don't have time to go. He actually, he restores his sonship. And then what do they do? Throw a party. Throw a party. My son that was lost has now come back home. But that story, the one in the middle kind of gets lost. And we don't hear a lot about it, but that's the one I want to look at because it's the final room. Verses 8 through 10 of Luke 15. Jesus gave them another parable. There once was a woman who had 10 valuable silver coins. When she lost one of them, she swept her entire house diligently, searching every room, every nook, every cranny for the lost coin. Let's just stay there for a moment. 
I want to give you the significance of these 10 coins. Because when you understand Jewish culture and what they would do, what they would do, the, the groom would give these 10 coins as a gift to the bride-to-be. And then they would take those 10 coins, fashion them to either make a necklace out of them or a headband, and that bride would wear them, and it was basically our modern version of a wedding band. And what those 10 coins represented when she wore them, it was a sign she is a faithful wife. So when she lost that one coin, she knew, I've lost my identity. I've lost who I am. I've got to search. This, this means it says she swept that room, that house clean, looking for it. I think that's what's happened to a lot of people even here today. There have been so many soul wounds, so many lies come at you, so many things the culture has thrown at you, so, so many things have piled up that you've lost who you are. You've lost your true identity. You lost who God created you to be. And what Jesus wants to do today is what this woman do, began to do. Take a broom and begin to go through every room in our mind and begin to sweep them out, clean them out. See, you ever watch Hoarders? We think to ourselves, how could someone get that bad? The only thing is our hoarding Every room in our mind is filled with garbage. Junk that don't need to be there. And what they'll do, you, you see this, this person, hey, can we, what I'm going to do is I'm going to professional shop. What I'm going to do, I'm going to walk through. You tell me, junk pile or stay? Junk pile or stay? Then what happens? Everyone they go to, they'll see something that, oh, what, what about this crystal bag? No. That crystal bag reminds me when I was on my way home and stopped with my grandkids and got us a sack full of crystals. Can't get rid of that bag. And we're thinking, how insane. It's garbage. Throw it away. But we can't recognize that when it's up here. And we need a professional Jesus to come in and begin to clean it out. He doesn't, he's not even going to, listen, he's not even going to ask you whether it needs to stay. Now, it's going to be your option because he's a gentleman, but what he wants to do is come in and begin to clean out and put things back in order, where they go, where they should have been, what should be like that. And he begins to sweep. And what he's doing is, listen, your identity is in here. we just got to clean out the room. We've got to get rid of the lies. We've got to get rid of the hurts and the wounds because your identity is in here. Who I created you to be, who I made you to be, it's in here. Man. I love this verse 9. When she finally found it, she gathered all her friends and neighbors for a celebration. Come celebrate me with me because I lost my precious silver coin, but now I found it. And Jesus says, that's the way God responds. Every time one lost sinner repents and turns to him, and he says to all his angels, let's have a joyous celebration for the one that was lost I have found. In other words... They threw a party. We should be having parties every Sunday in this place. 
people coming to Jesus, we should throw on the, the, the Cupid shuffle or something. Let's all, come on, let's get it. Another soul. Let's go to the left. Go to the right. Bring it down. Let's do something. Let them know. Hey, the angels are right there. I see you, Jesus. See, so, uh, I tell people said in our in our drama uh, centuries. I said where we lose a lot of religious people is they can't ever see Jesus doing the stanky leg, and it just messes with them because Jesus didn't dance. We all know that. Well, I don't even want to go there. He wants to clean out some rooms. Stand with me across this place. And I'm even talking to the ones, yeah, the ones in the lobby. Because I don't want you to think, I think God's going to be speaking to you even in the lobby today. In here, even online, he's speaking. He's going to move. I want to take a moment just to speak the name of Jesus over some rooms in your life. If you'll bring up those lyrics for me.